from 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 13. Yet, among the mature, we do impart wisdom, though it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But, as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Well, Good morning. I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to Acts chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 12 through 26. We do our best to put the passages up on the screen, but I will tell you this, especially throughout the sermon, as these passages get longer and longer, and they will, that's just the nature of preaching through large narrative like we're going to do in the book of Acts, the best thing you can do is have your own copy of God's Word right there in your lap. I think that will be a lot easier. I'll do the best that I can to put the verses that we're highlighting up on the screen, but it just gets really hard. And I'll tell you, today will be imperfect, like most Sundays in that regard. And so if you have your own Bible, I want to encourage you to, to turn there and follow along with me through the course of this study of the book of Acts. If you don't own your own Bible, the good news is you could not be alive at any better time. You can go to the Apple store on your phone or to Google if you have uh, Google Play, if you're like me and have an Android, and you can type in three letters, E-S-V. And if you do that, an app is going to come up. You can download that for free and have a copy of God's Word that is translated into English at no charge to you. And that is an amazing thing that has not been true for most of Christendom. Most of Christendom, you me, regular folks, don't have access to the Bible. And even when we did start getting access, you got to go to a store, you've got to pay for it, and you've got to get it. And now you can have it right there in your pocket all day long. So I encourage you to do that and have your own copy of the Word of God uh, that you can read outside of church and also follow along with us while we are here. Well, today's passage in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26, we want to look at who were the early disciples? Who were the disciples? What kind of people were they? Now, what's really interesting about this passage is it actually has a list of 11 names and even some others. So it's like, well, who were they? Gosh, there's a list. This is going to be a really short sermon. But I mean more than that, not just like what their names were, but who were they? What kind of people made up this early church? What were they, what did they want to accomplish? What was the nature of the things that they were trying to do? What were their goals? And I believe this passage helps us see that today. And so we're looking at Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. I am going to read the entirety of the passage this morning, picking up in verse 12. It says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John, 
and James, and Andrew, and Philip, and Thomas, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. And all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. And in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in the ministry. Now this man acquired a field with the reward for his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office." So one of the men who had accompanied us during all the time that Jesus, or that the Lord Jesus was in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward to Joseph, called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. Well, what we want to look at today is we are trying to answer that question, what kind of people were these early disciples? The first thing that I want us to see in verses 12 through 14 is that they were a praying people. What we've seen from our last two weeks and the earlier uh, paragraphs in the book of Acts is that Jesus has told the disciples after his resurrection, he is appearing to them for about 40 days and he tells them, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Holy Spirit or the promise from the Father, which is the Holy Spirit. And they are doing that, and they come together, and then Jesus tells them, hey, and then when that Spirit comes upon you, he's going to give you power to be my witnesses in all of the world. And so he ascends into heaven. They get caught gawking. The angels look down and say, hey, what are you doing? He gave you something to do, as Ben told us last week. And that's where we pick up now. And the disciples do something that they don't often do, it feels like, in the Scriptures, or at least seems like, is... They listened. They actually did what Jesus told them to do. They went back to Jerusalem and waited. It's like a, a rare thing, but they did it. And so here they are. They go back to Jerusalem, and I think it's just giving us some geography. They were at this, the mount, all of that, and they take about a Sabbath day journey away, which just is the amount of steps you were allowed to walk on the Sabbath. It's basically, he's telling us it wasn't very far. And they go into this upper room. The apostles are named, but it's not just the apostles. You also have some other women who are there, possibly their wives or other women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and some of Jesus' brothers. And it seems like in verse 15, there's roughly 120 people there at this time. And what do they do? Well, as they're waiting, they're told to go and wait in Jerusalem. Our text tells us that all these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Verse 14, together. And that's what I want us to see. Because what kind of people were they? They were the kind of people when maybe they weren't totally sure what to do, and they were left to just wait for a period of time. They were the kind of people who joined together and devoted themselves to prayer. 
The NIV translates this as they joined together constantly, meaning they were devoted. They continued to do this. They didn't just like get together and pray one time. It was something that they were consistently doing with one another. And they were doing this in one accord or with the same mind, with the same goal or values together. They were in agreement as they are praying. And I think if we're all just honest, as I talk to most Christians and I live life as a Christian myself, I would say consistent and devoted prayer can be a struggle. It can be a struggle to get in there and pray day in and day out. Many of us may, may pray when things get really, really hard. We may pray if things are maybe really, really good. But a devotion and a regular observance of, of constant prayer, if we're all honest, can be difficult. The Bible reading sometimes seems to be a little easier. It's a checklist. I, it feels tangible and I can accomplish it. But, but praying, you know, by the time that 20 minutes is up and I've read, do I have time to pray? We all struggle, I think, from time to time with these things. And so what I want to know is, can we look at this passage and these early people? This is who they were. They're told to go and wait for the promise of the Father, and they come together, and they are a praying people. How can we be a praying people? What do we see in this passage that helps us do this? Well, I think we see that they were in one accord, that they were together. They weren't just doing this alone. I think sometimes in prayer we, we become so individualistic that we don't recognize the importance of doing this in the context of community. The importance of what we just did as Jimmy led us as a church. Why do we do that every single Sunday? It's because we want to be like the early church. We want to be a praying people. But I think that requires us to come together, to be of one accord. Brittany and I just finished listening to an audio book together called Born to Run by Chris McDougall. It's a fun read for sure, but in it, he, he tells a story of the Kalahari Bushmen. The Kalahari Bushmen do this thing called persistence hunting, where they literally run an animal to death. They kill it, not with their bare hands, not with spears, not with anything. They run it to death. They're in South Africa where it gets really, really hot. And apparently, human beings are better at cooling down their body biologically while they're running than animals are. Animals have to stop, and they have to breathe, and they pant, and that's how they cool down their system. We sweat like crazy. Uh, When it comes to mammals, we just sweat a lot more than other things. And so they get to sweat. They also have things like hands, and they run on two feet, and so they can do things like carry water. Animals can't do that. they're, They're running on four legs. If they don't get to stop and drink, they don't get any water. But these Kalahari Bushmen can keep running and they keep dose- cooling themselves down and they run together. And they quite literally, you can go watch a seven-minute video on YouTube if you're really interested in this, and this guy runs a kudu to death. He just keeps this thing running until it just falls over from exhaustion and dies. How in the world do you run that much? We were at a wedding last night, and I danced for like four minutes and was tired. I don't know how they do that. It lasts eight hours. They run more than a marathon in the course of this. How are they so devoted? Well, they do it together. As they run in groups, 
Even the older men will run with them, and they're better at tracking the animal. Sometimes they lose that animal, and it's really important when you're trying to run something to death that you don't mistake it for a different one, right? Because you don't want to start over. You've got to stick with the same one that you're pushing. And so these guys get so good at tracking, the old guys can literally track that one specific one. So their knowledge is helping the young guys move on. And then once they cut that animal off from the herd, then they look at the young guns and they say, get him. And the old guys drop back and the young guys take off. And even then what they'll do is they'll run that thing and they'll just keep it in sight. They'll just keep it in sight and it'll keep running and it'll keep running and keep running. And when the guy who's just keeping it in sight gets a little tired, he drops back. And the guys in the back of the pack, they pick it up. And that's how they keep running this animal down is they do it together. They're in one accord, devoted. Now I know what you're thinking. You're also saying, yeah, and they're also devoted because they're hungry. They're devoted, and they're so devoted to that because they have to eat. And I want to remind you what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. What does it look like for Redemption Hill to become a praying people? Devoted. I think it means that we have to come together in one accord, with the same view in mind of seeing the kingdom of God expanded. And that's the goal. And we're all on the same goal. It's going to take those of us who are maybe further along in our faith using knowledge. And it's going to take some of us who maybe have different life uh, circumstances and maybe got a little more in the tank because you're not chasing down tiny things that don't sleep called children like I am. And and what it might look like for all of us to come together and run together, and to look to Christ, and all of it, we have to have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, that we desire the things of God to be near him and close to him. I put myself in their, their shoes, and they have walked with Jesus. He's not just somebody who they're fond of. They love him. They worship him. They've seen him raised from the dead, and then he's gone. And I think they go back, and they pray Because they just want to be close to Christ. Do we want to be close to Christ? Are we a praying people? I hope so. See, the apostles were given this God-sized task. They were to go and be witnesses to what Jesus has done in his resurrection to all of the world. And so, because of that, they were dependent upon God they knew they couldn't achieve that task without God's help. Yet I think they're confident that the Lord would work through them because they would receive help. And as they do that, we also see that these are the kinds of people who are discerning people. Looking now at verse 15. Picking up there, it tells us, and in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was all in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit speak, spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. See, the reality was, is, is, is Peter is sitting there, and he's looking around, and he's counting, and he counts again. He says, yeah, there's just 11 of us here now. Judas is gone. There's supposed to be 12. And so he stands up, and he tells them, listen, we, we are, are to come together, and as we're waiting for the Holy Spirit... It is, we, we need to see that, that, that there's 12 of us here. 
And so he starts talking about Judas, because Judas is the one who was supposed to be the 12th. But and then he recounts that story that Judas, for 30 pieces of silver, we know this from the Gospels, betrayed Jesus and he sells him out. That this is just what it looks like. But what we want to see is, is that this didn't surprise God. It didn't surprise Jesus, and he recounts this story in verse 18. He says, Now this man acquired a field with a reward for his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all of his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akodama, that means the field of blood. And so he starts to recount this story, and so he looks around, and he says, Okay, there's only 11 of us here because Judas, who was numbered, and he tells us, and it's probably this kind of footnote that Luke gives us, because everybody here knows in the room, probably knows what happened to Judas. You don't forget about that kind of thing. And I think it's easy to kind of think, well, man, did, did God mess up? I picked Judas. Is this what happened? Was that just like, whoops, I messed that up? But, but what we want to see is that Jesus knew that that was going to happen. In John 17, verse 12, it says, Jesus is praying, and he says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given to me. He's talking about his disciples. So I have guarded them. Not one of them has been lost Accept the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So here we have told in the words of Jesus and in the words of Peter that the scriptures are telling us that there would be a betrayer and that Judas was a part of that betrayal. That this was a part of God's plan and they're trying to discern what God is doing. Yet at the same time, it's not like Judas just became uh, a puppet on a string and, and he just did what God wanted him to do. See, Judas was led away by his own desires. We know from, from passages like Mark 14 that, that Judas, when, when uh, Mary comes and breaks her, her perfume over Jesus, that he's saying, hey, get that money for the poor. But then in John's gospel, he tells them, Judas didn't want to give the money to the poor. Judas oversaw the treasury. He was mad that that got broken and put on Jesus because he wanted the money to go into the treasury because then he could get a little more out of there. Judas was a thief, and he was greedy. He had a money problem. He wanted those things. See, Judas did what he wanted to do, and yet it was according to the will of God. And so you have these two things coming together where the scriptures have to be fulfilled. Someone has to portray Jesus, but it's also not like Judas doesn't have a choice in this. He goes his own way. He does what he wants to do. Even in this passage of Acts, it's way down further. It says, so that Judas turned aside to go to his own place. He wants to go his own way. That's why James can tell us in James chapter 1, verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It is true that it was God's will that someone would betray Jesus. It is in the scriptures according to Peter and according to Christ. Yet, God tempts no one. Judas is tempted by his own desire. He loves money, and he goes his own way. What we see, and we're told there in verse 18 and 19, in our passage this morning, James is right. That when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. 
And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. There's nowhere else that sin will ever lead you other than straight to death. So then what does Peter do is he quotes in verse 20 two different psalms or verses from psalms. In verse 20, it says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May may his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it. That's from Psalm 69, verse 25. He quotes that, and both of these psalms are about the Messiah being persecuted by his persecutors, and, and it starts talking about who these people are who would betray Jesus, and Peter says, that was Judas. And if he betrayed Judas in that, Jesus in that kind of way, God's Messiah, his camp has to become desolate, or his position as an apostle must be empty. And that's exactly what happens when he dies. His position is emptied, and that no one will dwell in it. And so that's where they are in Acts chapter 1. Peter is saying, look, he persecuted the Messiah. He gave up the Messiah, and therefore his, his spot is not taken. And so then he quotes another psalm, Psalm 109, verse 8, and he says, let another take his office. He says, but listen, which is another psalm about persecution of God's anointed, which is another way to say God's Messiah. And Peter is saying, we need to fill this role. So how does Peter get there in these two random psalms? I don't think I would have gotten there. But in Luke 22, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says this to the 12 that he chooses. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. We also see later in the book of Revelation that the apostles' names correlate with the 12 tribes of Israel. It seems what is happening is Jesus picks 12 apostles to correlate with those 12 tribes of Israel to say, look, this new age is coming and a new age is dawning. And in the way that these 12 tribes were representative of God's people, you 12 apostles will lead the people of God who will no longer be an ethnic group of people, but be people who come to faith in Christ. And that's who they are. And then you have other apostles like Paul, who also comes along as well, and they are fulfilling this really special role. And so that's what we see happening. And and, and so Peter looks around, and he exercises a little common sense. He counts to 11. There's not 12. There's supposed to be 12. He thinks through the scriptures. Well, persecuted the Messiah. He's got to go. He's gone. Also, His spot is supposed to be filled. Guys, I think we need to fill the spot. So they got to think, okay, how in the world are we going to do this? Because last time this happened, Jesus was there, and Jesus said, you 12. And it was really easy how God picks a spot. But now they're thinking, okay, how in the world do we do this? And they're thinking, okay, well, it's supposed to be a a witness to the resurrection. So verses 21 through 22, we're just going to do this this quickly. It has to be somebody who who has... been with them the whole time, from the time that Jesus was baptized to the time that he ascended. So they're like, okay, there's 120 of us here. You two guys have been here the whole time. Come on up. And then they cast a lot. They pray first to the Lord, and they want the decision to be up to God. And then they cast lots, which is a strange thing to do for us Westerners. 
But I want to say this, this was a normal practice that you saw happening in the Old Testament. So they weren't going off. And, and, and I would say, don't go casting lots anytime soon because what happens in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit shows up and you now have the Holy Spirit. They're still waiting. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit and they just they want to make the right decision. And so they come to this and they come together and they're losing a, a little common sense. Okay, you guys have been here the whole time. Well, now there's two of them. So let's pray. Lord, you know the hearts of all. We're not, we're not just leaving this up to chance. We're not leaving this up to, to something, but we want to leave this up to God. And so verse 24 says, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you have chosen to take place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And that's when they cast lots, and the lot falls to Matthias. And that's how they can, can choose who this is. Now, that's a lot of stuff. And what in the world does that mean for Monday morning? How is that supposed to change me, or what am I supposed to glean from a passage like that? There are five things that I want us to apply. They'll be up on the screen that I think we can look at if we walk kind of through the passage again. Number one is this. God's will cannot be thwarted. God's will cannot be thwarted. Oftentimes, uh, Christians suffer from paralysis by analysis. We don't want to make a decision or do anything because we're terrified we're going to ruin God's will for the world. If Judas couldn't mess up God's will for the world, neither can you. There is no way you're going to make a decision and mess it up. He's going to keep things going. Now, with that said, follow your own desires like Judas, and it will lead you to death. Maybe not by falling headlong and having your entrails spill out everywhere and having a field named after it for all, etern- all time, Probably not. For Judas, it did, because he's kind of like the worst, right? But that's what happens. He betrays Jesus. So I want to look at Judas and say, okay, don't follow your own way. It won't turn out well for you. But I also want to say, there's nothing that you're going to do. There's not like any decisions that God's like, man, I hope he makes the right one, because if not, this whole plan is messed up. That is never going to happen. God is in complete control. He works alongside our ability to make decisions and follow our desires in a way that I don't totally understand, but there has never been a time in human history, and there will never be one, where his plans get messed up. God's will cannot be thwarted. So you need to know that. Number two, yet our choices do matter. It mattered a lot for Judas. He tries to give the money back. He, he can't. They use it to go buy a f- field. And he ends up dead. In Matthew, it tells us that he hangs himself. In Acts, it says that he falls headlong. And we don't know. It's not, that's not a hard thing to kind of harmonize. Maybe something happened in the course of that, and he falls headlong, and hit the middle burst open. But we do know is this. Is he goes down in infamy. So yes, it's true that God's will won't be thwarted and we're holding these things in tension together and your choices do matter. You do want to follow God's will for your life. You want to make choices that honor and glorify him. And if we don't, there are earthly consequences in this world. When we follow our own desire and we go our own way, it can be really difficult. 
the good news is in this passage, we have Judas, but we also have Peter, who also failed and made mistakes. But Judas ran and tried to deal with problems on his own, and it led him to death. Peter meets Jesus and is reinstalled into his ministry. Peter's poor choices are redeemed when he turns it and runs to Christ. And so that's what we want to do. We want to be a people who have eyes set on Jesus. And even when you mess up, even when you sin, when you go your own way, turn, run to Jesus. And that's what it looks like because he can turn our lives around. But he calls us to be a part of that process in exercising our free agency and doing what he has commanded us to do, to not be led by desire, but to be led by Christ. Number three, now we're getting the things that you can do. So those are the things you can know. God's will can't be thwarted. Your choices do matter. But number three, you need to pray. That's what they do. They're praying constantly, devoted to one another. When they don't know what to do, and they just kind of get to this crossroads of, both of these guys seem like a good option. This is no longer a sin-like-Judas decision or not. This is, this is option A or option B, and it's just difficult. They pray, and they cry out to the Lord, you know the hearts of all. God, you know everything. We want to be a praying people who go to the Lord who are praying, who are communing with the Spirit of God. Number four is you want to rely on the revealed will of God in a little common sense. It's okay to make decisions because it just makes sense. It doesn't always work out in such a way where the answer is just super, super clear. What am I supposed to do in this situation? Sometimes we've just got to put some pieces together. Sometimes we've just got to say, should I buy this or that? I don't know. Get a spreadsheet. How much money do you make? How much money do you spend? Is that a comfortable and wise decision? And you just make a decision. These are the things that we have to do. And so we want to rely on the revealed will of God. Is this sin? Is this true? Is it not? Does this line up with what God wants me to do? But sometimes decisions are just common sense. You've got to make a choice. You've got to say, am I, am I going after my own desires or am I going after the Lord's desires? Am I submitting myself to him through that prayer and understanding his revealed will for my life? And then making a choice. And number five, you act. You make a choice. And here's the good news. God's will won't be thwarted. You're not going to mess up his plans for the world. If you don't make the right choice, it'll sort out. He'll get you to the right one. I, I can't tell you how many times in my life where God just closed doors. I'm like, why is he doing that? And then it's like, oh, because I was supposed to go here. I thought we were going to plant a church in St. Louis. We're not in St. Louis. Because I couldn't get a church planter who I was, I was going to work for free. I literally, like, hey, I will come and work for you for free. You know how church planters want that phone call? I'll take that phone call. None of them will call me back. It's like, this doesn't make any sense. Then I land in Columbus. I end up back in Missouri. Someone's talking to me. And they say, how in the world are you not planting a church in St. Louis? How did we lose you? None of you called me back. It's got, that's, the, the, sometimes the Lord works like that. You just act. You take the next step forward. He knows, and he'll work it out for your good. Sometimes you are just left with two good decisions, and so you make one. I don't think you need to cast lots now because, again, a verse later, things are about to change really drastically, and the Holy Spirit is still in you, and I think he communes with you in a way that he wasn't communing with them in, chapter, in verse 26 of chapter 1. 
And so those are the five things I think we can take away from this passage. Now, all of these things hinge upon the final truth that I want to draw out from this text today. The one thing that I really want us to see, because none of this really matters if you don't get this thing, and that's this, is what is the goal, what is the point of the lives of these people? What were they ultimately supposed to be? And they were to be witnesses to the resurrection. That's what it is all about. They are to be witnesses to the resurrection. Your common sense will be tented and it will take you in the wrong direction if that isn't the prevailing goal in your life is to be a witness to all that Christ has done. Then these five things I give you aren't going to help much because they're always going to be slanted and moving because you're going to interpret the world and circumstances through your own lens rather than through the lens that God would want you to look at the world through. We have to be a people who are in one accord with our eyes on the prize, understanding I'm put on this earth to be a witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now we say that in the context of the church, so that might look a little differently for all of us. I may be a church planter, but we need church members as well. That's what this can be. And so they look, and look, going back to verses 21 through 22, it says, so, so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he's taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. I think that goes back to what Jesus was saying in Luke 22, as well as the reality of they need a credible witness. A credible witness is somebody who is with them all over and over and over, like, who's with them the whole time. It's easy to discredit them and say, how do you know that's what Jesus really did? You weren't even there. They're able to say with these 12 apostles, yes, we were there the whole time. The credible witnesses to the resurrection. And that's what Peter wants them to be. But the hard thing is, what in the world does that mean for me? Because I didn't see Jesus raised from the dead with my own two eyes? Can I be a credible witness? You want to say yes, but I also want to say this. There are no apostles like these apostles. These apostles, these 12 and, other, and, and men like Paul and James who saw the resurrected Christ, who see them with their own eyes, are used in a very special way. They have authority that I don't have, that you don't have, and nobody has. God uses them to give us the New Testament. They are able to say things that are authoritative for all Christians everywhere because the Holy Spirit used them in a special way to give us the Scriptures. And I want to say apostles like that are no more. They had to see Jesus be with him. It was a part of the requirement that they had to do. Now, with that said, there are some who use the term apostle to, to talk about a missionary or a church planter or maybe someone who oversees a couple other churches because the word just means sent out one. So anybody who is sent out, I guess technically, can be an apostle, but not like these guys. Apostle, big A, it's these 12, it's Paul, it's James, the brother of Jesus. It's people who saw Jesus, who watched him work miracles, live, die, raise from the dead. We aren't those people. Nobody can claim that kind of authority in your life today. No one can be that kind of credible witness to the resurrection. So then where is the authority? 
do we have a credible witness to the resurrection? Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 20, Paul tells us this. Talking to Gentiles, people who also wouldn't have been there to see that, he says, so, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we look at this passage. What is the foundation that the church is built upon or the household of God is built upon? It's the word, the revealed word of the apostles and the prophets of how God used these people in a very special way to bring about revelation that really is special. It is authoritative for all Christians everywhere for all time. Christ is the cornerstone of that because they actually saw him and they heard his words and they did those things. I believe that what that is teaching us is that the New Testament is to be the foundation of every church. The Bible, God's word, is the foundation of every church, not a human being. That if even a human being stands in front of the church and says, I've had a vision, this is where we need to go, we should say, whoa, not, <laughs> you didn't have that kind of vision. Let me tell you, the apostles did have a special apostleship. That's what Jude, or Peter is looking around and saying, they have to fulfill this ministry, this apostleship. And in this church age that we're going to see throughout the book of Acts, they're doing things that are truly incredible. And I believe that that is happening because it's this special moment in history where the Spirit of God is pouring out on his people to grow his church and give them this, the foundation for every local church, which is the Bible, the Word of God, a foundation laid by the apostles and prophets when the cornerstone is Christ Jesus. And that's what we want to see. Now we can say, does that matter for my life? I would say, yeah, it does. Because what is, the, what is your authority for your life? What are you building your life upon? We live in a world where I think the internet has become our authority instead of the scriptures. And even good things, they become, if I can use this term, functional apostles in our lives. I think we as a people are more often to go to YouTube rather than the Bible. We as a people are more often likely to go look at social media influencers instead of your community group. We go to a website or a blog instead of our own local pastors. And we do those things because it feels like those things have more authority in our lives. But if the authority that God is giving us is the Bible and then the household of God or our local church built upon that authority, that has to be the number one places that we go. We have to go to the word of God itself and the people of God that he has given to us. What I'm trying to say is it's better to work out difficult matters in person with Bibles open than it is on a website. Reddit is going to take you down a hole where you want to go because that's how they work. That's how these algorithms and things. They show you just what you want to see, whatever's going to get more clicks. And you're more likely to go your own way rather than butting up with somebody else who maybe disagrees with you in your small group. 
opening up the Bible and coming, okay, so what is the truth? Can we figure this out together? You have a different experience than I do, and I have a different experience than you. We've got to do this. That's what the local church is supposed to be. But I think often we go to some kind of functional apostle. We treat Bible teachers who are great Bible teachers, but to be honest, we give them too much power. I think they would be horrified to know that sometimes we would say, I don't know, I believe that because I guess John Piper does. Or I believe that because Matt Chandler does. Or I believe that because whatever Bible teacher you like believes it. What I'm trying to say is they don't have that kind of authority in your life. And even in a sense, you shouldn't even say, well, I believe that because Josh does. We're to be a people that say, I believe that because that's what I see in the scriptures. And I'm working it out. And when I don't know what the scriptures say, I want to be a person that says, you know, I don't know what I believe about that yet. I'm still working that out. And what I want to encourage you is where should you go to work that out? Is here with people that you can look eyeball to eyeball who have a different experience than you do. I believe that's God's plan for you in making decisions. When you have hard decisions to make in your life, I want to encourage you to allow the church to be a part of that. I'm not saying that we're going to put it to a vote, but I am saying so often... I've experienced it. We're running, we're going well, and then it's like, boom, out of nowhere. Someone's like, hey, we've just made this huge life-altering decision. And you're like, oh, man, I hope that's right. But I really want to encourage you, utilize all the resources God has given you. The local church is a part of that. Godly men and women with wisdom can help you think through things. When it comes to making this huge decision of who the next apostle is going to be, he goes before these 120 believers and says, what should we do? And they come together and they, okay, these two guys, seems like the right thing. All right, Lord, tell us what to do. I just think what a blessing. What a blessing that we can make hard decisions in this kind of way. Because here's what I want to conclude with. If we do this, If we become a people who don't look to the outside world, even good resources to be our ultimate authority, but look to the scriptures and lean in on one another, we will bear witness to the resurrection, which is the whole point of why we exist as a church, to bear witness to the fact that Jesus came, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and rose from the dead. Our church will bear witness to that when we operate God's way, when we lean on one another, Because here's the reality. The book of Acts should end at Acts chapter 1, verse 26. People can get swept up by a charismatic leader. They can get swept up by them and led really far by someone with a lot of charisma and the ability to do that. And if if that's all that Jesus was, I think the story ends at Acts chapter 1, verse 26. These people get together. They say, oh, one of our leaders betrayed the old one. We've got to figure out a way to do this. They fight about it, and then it's over. The movement splinters, splits off, goes in a bunch of different directions, and it stops right there, dead in its tracks. But here we are, Columbus, Ohio, thousands of years later, thousands of miles away, 
still bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because of Acts chapter two. Because we weren't left alone to figure this out. The Spirit comes, the Father fulfills his promise, and because he comes and enables them to fulfill the the mission, to bear witness, this group of 120 people with no influence, no power, and the odds stacked against them become a Christian movement of millions of people today. That's an amazing evidence for what God is doing. If we can do that, if we can be a people who trust each other and work out these things together and we're not running outside of ourselves always to be the ultimate authority, but the ultimate authority is right here in the text and we're relying upon the Spirit of God to lead us through God's means of the local church led in the way that God wants it to be, then we will bear witness to our community that Jesus is alive that he's still living and active because everyone will look at us and they would say, there is no way that those two guys should be friends. And we will be. And that will bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That will bear witness to the truth that God's plan is to bring people from every tribe, nation, and language together under one banner, under the banner of Jesus, that they might worship and honor him. And that's what I hope our church does. Let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you for all the things that you give us. Lord Jesus, I praise you that you are king, that you work in such a way that declares your majesty, that shows that you are in control, and Lord, that we still are making decisions and exercising our own volition and our own will in all this, and Lord, that we don't want to be a people who are driven away by our own desire, but rather, God, we're a people who, who because we're leaning into the Spirit of God and being led by the Spirit and walking by the Spirit, we pursue the things that you want us to pursue. Righteousness, and we hunger, and we thirst for it, and that we would come together as a people. And when big decisions need to be made, that we would do that together under the leadership that you've given us as a church, but also as a congregation together, that we'd be able to weigh in on weighty matters. And that at the end of it all, as we bring up good decisions and we're like, ah, I still don't know what to do, that we would be a people who cry out in our hearts, oh God, you know the hearts of all men. Lord, show us what we are to do. And that you would speak clearly by your spirit and guide our church. And that we would do what is right. God, I pray for your blessing and I ask for your help as we keep marching forward as a small church plant. And Lord, I ask that you just use us to see people come to Christ and that we would bear witness to the resurrection. I ask this in your name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.